Hello, beautiful people. You are listening to the Communal Table Podcast, part of Food & Wine Pro. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman, and my guest today, well, my guests today, and actually, (laughs) this was recorded a little over a year ago at Tales of the Cocktail in uh, New Orleans. Um, It's an annual get-together of some of the brightest minds in the beverage business, and I had the opportunity to sit down with the legendary Dale DeGroff and Julie Reiner. And for me, those two are just cocktail royalty. I moved to New York City in 1996 uh, after just getting out of school and uh You know, I didn't drink a whole lot in in college and I started to a little bit in grad school and decided that I was going to be a person who really cared about cocktails. Uh, You know, fitting that into my budget was rather a different thing when, you know, beer was cheap and plentiful. But I decided that this was something that I really cared about. And I started looking around New York City to see where I would be able to get some of these cocktails that I'd started to read about uh, at the time. it, it was when the cocktail revolution was really starting to happen in the United States. Um, a lot of cocktails had fallen by the wayside in, in favor of, oh gosh, I don't know, wine, wine coolers and, and uh, you know, mixed drinks and stuff, all of which have their, their own particular place. But there is a craft to these drinks. Um, and Dale DeGroff and Julie Reiner are two of the people who have most closely studied uh, this, this really rich history of uh, the art of bartending and the making of these cocktails. And they were two of the people behind some of the fundamental places, uh, especially in New York City, that really started bringing some of these older drinks back from the past. Um, I had the opportunity to go to Dale DeGroff's Blackbird, which was a bar that only existed for a brief period of time and where I felt like I got a lifetime's worth of education just sitting at the bar watching him make cocktails and Julie is behind some of the most significant places that uh, spawned some of the greatest bartenders across the country. So it really felt special to get to sit down with them. And this is this podcast is actually running now all this time later because Tales of the Cocktail uh, will be happening again um, virtually this year. And because Dale's classic book from 2002, The Craft of the Cocktail, is being reissued as the new craft of the cocktail. And it's time to listen to what these giants of the industry have to say. Hello, beautiful people. Uh, This is a special edition of the Communal Table Podcast, part of Food & Wine Pro. If the sound is a little bit different, we are in the Media Lounge at the Royal Sinesta Hotel at Tales of the Cocktail in New Orleans. And I am... In the presence of greatness here, I've got Dale DeCroft and Julie Reiner, who um, I, I, I've never actually said this to them, but they probably have had more influence on my cocktail life than anybody <laughs> in uh, you know, in creation. And I'm, I'm going to put Paul Harrington in that <laughs> a little bit here. I'll, maybe someday I'll get to grab him. But um, as I was starting to really uh, notice that drinks were more than, say, amaretto sours <laughs> that I had been drinking in grad school when I moved to New York in the 90s, the two of them were uh, crafting a whole new era of cocktails. And I want to talk with them about that. Welcome. Thank you for having us. It's Good lovely. morning. <laughs> oh, wait, it's we nine, need coffee. Yeah. I will just note, it it's is New Orleans and we didn't have the coffee 30 in the morning. If you were going to have a New Orleans wake-up cocktail, what would that be? Uh, the Ramos Fizz, absolutely. Oh, that. <laughs> for sure. Oh, my gosh. So let's get into this. I moved to New York in 1996, and it took me a couple years to get my bearings. I started dating a guy who had a mutual obsession with cocktails, and he was like, well, here there's this... Um, this place is opening up Blackbird, um, and uh, he was like the, this bartender there. I'm, you know, so interested in him. Uh, Dale DeGroff. He'd been at Rainbow Room. He'd been, at, you know, Windows in the World, and um, and he hasn't gotten to be behind the bar. We, you know, I haven't got, you know, I've heard of him for years. I haven't gotten to have his stuff, and I 
went to uh, Blackboard with our bars editor from City Search, Amy Douthat, and I had the first blood and sand of my life. <laughs> and it opened me up to a whole new world of cocktails. Can you talk about what you were doing there and well, how you knew to do that? I call it a pop-up because it only lasted 11 months. <laughs> but we had a good a business plan, and my partner was the money guy, and uh, at the last minute they wanted to open for lunch and I said that doesn't work to our business plan so we had to hire a fancy chef and I had wanted a four o'clock till four o'clock lounge with yeah. jazz and cocktail waitresses and hamburgers and stuff you yeah. know <laughs> it was a it was a property we owned the lease to because it had been a fine dining restaurant called Aurora many years before oh, yeah and that's where I started to work for my mentor Joe Baum and uh well this last minute change to having lunch, suddenly with the, in the bright light of day, they saw that this, and it was a turnkey, because we didn't do any cosmetic work on like the torn leather seats. But at night, you wouldn't have seen that with the low lights in the lounge. And was, I remember it being really pretty. Yeah, so Red, we- Red, maybe? <laughs> Plants? It, it, it was a beautiful mural up above, yeah. and, and of course, Aurora, uh, the, the whole beautiful bar that Joe had designed, and it was lovely. Of course, that was intact, but- uh, but the, uh, the cocktails and the cocktail hour were booming, but nobody came for dinner because it was not meant to be fine dining. It was meant to be a jazz club, you know. And I wanted to, I wanted to keep that, that on track. But we were making great cocktails, and it gave me the opportunity to work side by side for the first time for 11 months. And we had wanted to do this since she took my course at NYU with Audrey Saunders. Yeah. She took a course at NYU and came up afterwards. It was a Jerry Thomas four-hour cocktail-making course. And she said, I want to do this. I'll work for you for nothing at the Rainbow Room. And I said, eh, it's a local six-house. There's a long line for people to get behind yeah. those bars, yeah. so that ain't going to happen. I said, but I do a lot of pro bono stuff, and I'd love to have you on that. But this was our first opportunity to work together side by side, and it was great. I remember it was the first time I ever saw a muddler, and I was like, what is that? I think your son was behind the bar and making... Um, you know, I had a cobbler, I had a flip. I actually looked like my son back then. Yeah. <laughs> I think you still do. But it was it was mind blowing to me. I didn't realize there were different kinds of ice, and this yeah, Dale was Dale was uh, forging <laughs> a new beginning. Well, well, so were you too, though. I have to say, I remember you know sort of looking to see where Dale was working, and then. Tracking everybody who came through there, and I realized that there was something opening up called the Flatiron Lounge. Yeah. And at, I remember um, going in there, going into Pegu Club, going into just all these places, and it just it felt like this secret in some ways for a while because uh, you know I was starting to go to um, you know sort of more speakeasy-ish kind of thing. All of a sudden, why am I totally blanking on Sasha's place? <laughs> but yeah, it, like- Milk and honey. Milk and honey, yeah. yeah I had a friend who had the uh, the secret password to get in there and, yep. and brought me in there. And it was such a, it was such a remarkable thing that I felt like, it felt new, it had its roots in something old, but it felt like it all of a sudden a different kind of opportunity for socializing, for getting to imbibe all these different things in New York. And I didn't know if it was just because I was sort of young and dumb and this was my first time or if it was something that I was sort of getting to sneak into, but it was really magical. Can you talk about how you started doing this? Yeah, well, you know, I started out in San Francisco mm -hmm. and I moved to New York and uh, started managing a lounge in the West Village. And, and um, what I had been doing in San Francisco was fresh juices and, you know, I was learning about some of these classic cocktails, but I didn't really know anybody. I, did, I certainly didn't know yeah. Dale yeah. Or, or what was happening here in New York. And I, I just kind of started putting out these menus at, at this lounge called C3 in the, in the Washington Square. Oh my God, I went there. Yeah. <laughs> it was downstairs, <laughs> right? Yeah, it was in the very back of the restaurant. Yes. Um, and oh. so I was the manager there and I, and I started putting out these menus and Dale was involved with a theater group that was next door and somebody told me they're like oh this, this girl is doing these really cool drinks and you should go in there uh and I so in walked know. dale and, <laughs> and he was like hey kid what are you doing you know? <laughs> what year was that because so this was in 97 98 okay. yeah that i was there 
Um, and and I started. I I found you know Dale came in and I I met, suddenly I met you know it was at that time there were there was a handful of people yeah. who were like I like cocktails. Do yeah. you like cocktails? You know. Yeah, it's how I dated. I, I yeah. made sure that the guys I was dating either they this one guy taught me or I would be like, Do you know how to make a, you know Champs Elysees? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But not very many people really did. Yeah. And it was at that time everything was like sour mix on the gun and yeah. And so you know, and New Yorkers always want the best of everything. Yeah and they're willing to travel for it. So I started to get press at this at this place for some because it became like this word of mouth thing and yeah. somebody at the New York Times said, "Hey, you know, I'm was writing about the the apple martini and I was right. doing a, an infused apple martini that tasted like you were biting into an apple." Uh, and so I found myself, you know, on the front page of the food section and uh, suddenly overnight it, they were like cocktail expert and I was like oh no <laughs> I gotta read everything because I didn't have a mentor really? you know right I, like I, I didn't know that this was the origin story between you two because I, I I think I've always sort of taken you for granted because I always assumed that like the both of you as experts and I you know fangirled after after Dale and then once I started going to your places I, I did as well and Dale you had the you had the book that, can you tell people about the origin of this book uh, and, and, and the guy who worked yeah. on it with you? Well, the, the, the origin was way back in the Rainbow Room days, I had Dell... Pedro. Uh, no, I had Dell Books uh, editors drinking at my bar. Gotcha. Because, you know, I was right there at the AP building and, the, and, and Dell was two blocks up. And so they said, you know, you should be writing a book about this stuff. You're doing <laughs> something no one's done before, you know. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. I should be. You know, look, we have this beautiful menu, Milton Glaser graphics and fabulous drinks that hadn't been on menus for years. And so I start working on it. And I'm sending the recipes and chapters and stuff. And then, of course, Joe Baum knows everybody. My right. And the executive floor, I get a call from the executive floor, <coughs> 45th floor, alone, you know. And when you were called to the executive floor alone, oh, well, Joe is no. not a good thing. <laughs> and so he's got a foul look on his face. And he goes, what do you think you are doing? And I didn't know what he was talking about. Well, of course, he knows the senior editor, Dell. He knows everybody, right? And the senior editor, Dell, called him up and said, hey, your bartender's writing the book for us, huh? Oh, my God. <laughs> and he just about, he said, you. And several expl expletives came out of his mouth. Uh, number one, we don't own the name Rainbow. Number two, if anybody's going to write a book about this place, it's going to be me. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. So that was the end of my book thing. And then I'm working at uh, my pop-up. Blackbird. <laughs> yeah. Which again, it's like Woodstock. It's like everybody who went there started a bar. It was a great, great little bar, and we did do wonderful things. And the chef, you know, I joked about the chef. He and I ended up having such a great relationship, and he, everything he brought into the house, he said, we had meetings about what fruits were coming in. It was fabulous. But anyway, uh, one of my regular customers was an agent named John Hodgman with Writer's House, which is a terrific agency. And I'm like, he's a literary agent, and I'm, and I'm like, yeah, well, you know, he says, you got to write a book about Rainbow. I says, yeah, I already tried that, and it didn't work out really well at all. Right now, Joe is, has passed by now, and yeah. the Rainbow Room is closed. And he said, no, it's time. You don't have to call it Rainbow or anything like that, because we didn't own the name Rainbow, and we couldn't use that name. So I said, yeah. I said, well, I don't know. And, and, he, and he finally talked me into it. We had a couple of meetings uh, in, in a friend of mine's bar, because I didn't want to go to offices and go through this whole hassle. Mm -hmm. So I made drinks for these, these editors, young, mostly young women, mm -hmm. and I told stories. And we got four offers on the book, and uh, I, I stuck to my principles and went for the highest money. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, as you do. I will note also, for the record, the John Hodgman who he meant mentioned is yeah that John Hodgman, yeah. <laughs> that John Hodgman. Right. Yeah. <laughs> who I I've never met him, but everybody has always told me that he is an incredible like cocktail fiend. He is. He is. And yeah. and it really felt like there was this kind of era in the late '90s, early 2000s, who you kind of picked up on who the other cocktail people in in town yeah. were because you would see them out at the bar. John, I went on Rachel Maddow's show before yeah. she became so political, and, and she I, was another cocktail fiend. She used to have yeah. cocktails all the time I on her show. I saw her do, uh, somebody tried to stump her, and it was a Satan's Whiskers, and she's like, uh, blind tasted it and said, straight or curly. <laughs> like she, <laughs> <laughs> like, and I always heard, well, back when I was working at Sienna, and I was always trying to get her to come on, but she, like, and she was MSNBC, yeah. so I couldn't get her on, but I'd always heard that too. Yeah. And my friends at home, like, they and I, we were making cocktails, and we were making them out of your book. I was the hot-wired uh, 
book that Paul Harrington did is, is Paul was a good friend back then. It's falling apart in my kitchen. I have it <laughs> duct taped together. I saved it from a flood. Oh <laughs> this is story about Paul. Yeah. He, he, my friends had a restaurant called Bucci's in Emeryville, right near where Paul was working at the time. Yeah. And Paul, uh, you know, was behind the bar, and, and Paul Paul Camardo, my friend, whose son, my son's godfather, was the owner of Bucci's restaurant, said, "Let's go over and." see this guy, Paul, he's a hot chef bartender over there uh, around the corner at a, at a fun little bar and restaurant, kind of French theme to it. And I said, uh, I went over and I said, uh, between the sheets. <laughs> he, he was not, he was just beginning, you know, and I started hitting him with drinks and it was really mean, you know, and oh, I said, no, no. <laughs> make me whatever you want to make me, you know, and, he, and we, we became <laughs> friends. And then when he was doing the book with uh, the wonderful woman who, who was the co-author. Oh, I know. Uh, yeah, from fantastic. from also from Hotwired. Yeah. She called me up and she said, um, "We would you like to collaborate on a book?" And I'm at the Rainbow. I'm thinking, eh, I'm not giving this away. I'm not giving it away. I'm going to do my." I said, "Actually, I'm going to be doing my own book." And I wish I had gone with oh. that book. It would have been so much fun to work on it, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to be Mr. Dale DeGroff. You know, have his own book someday. You know, <laughs> <laughs> which is which thing, I will right? say is a beautiful, <laughs> great book. I think it worked out for you, Dale. Yeah, yeah I, know, I, but I, I would love to have worked with those two because they were so talented, and that book was so good. It's yeah. it, the format of it is so great because it, it, it has a thing where you know you do like you think you like this, maybe try this, and which was really important because also this was the age of Sex in the City yeah. was coming up, and uh, you know, and I, I imagine I want to hear your take on this. Uh, the people coming in wanting Cosmos, Cosmos, yeah. Cosmos. And like, God bless Toby for <laughs> inventing yeah, right. the Cosmo. But it became such a thing. So can you talk about that particular effect on New York City cocktails of Cosmo? Yeah, well, I mean, when I opened Flatiron Lounge... Uh, what year it, was that? That was 2003. Okay, I think so, I was there the week it opened. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I got fired from the other place for doing, quote, too good of a job because it, it was... <laughs> it became a walkway... For through the, you had to walk through the restaurant to get to the bar, and I got a bunch of press, and so right. everybody was coming to the bar, and nobody was going to the restaurant, and the chef was pissed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, cut to <laughs> a few years later. Yeah. So I left there, uh, and I and then I opened my own place at Flatiron. But people would would come in, and and yeah, there was that. Oh, I want a Cosmo. I want a lemon drop. Yeah. They had seen these things on Sex in the City. Um, and you know, I would do, I would give people a money back guarantee and there were specific drinks mm -hmm. that I would suggest, you know, I was like, Oh, why don't you try this, a South side fizz? And if you hate it, I'll give you the Cosmo. Cause that mm -hmm. was like a, it was sort of a crossover yeah. drink of how we got people to drink gin, you know, yeah. cause nobody doesn't like that drink or a French 75. Oh, you know? my favorite cocktail so, actually. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, so I was doing a lot of that and 99% of the time they were like, thank you for for turning yes. me on to another drink. And, and so, you know, we also were doing the flights there where we would have three drinks that, you know, a flight to Mexico. Oh, you had those boards. Yeah. <laughs> um, a flight, you know, or a flight back in time where we did yeah. classic cocktails. So, you that know, we, we sort of like gently coaxed people into yeah. ordering new things and we kind of taught them how to drink in a way, yeah. you know, taking on, you know, post, post Dale and post Rainbow Room. Um, and really just like su making suggestions. And, and if they wanted the Cosmo, we would make them a great Cosmo too. <laughs> yeah, it, it <laughs> certainly it changed it my business because yeah. I, I, in 95, I think when I put it on the menu, it, it, it took off like a rocket. I mean, yeah. you know. It's it, a good it, drink. I mean, it it when is. it's made properly. Yeah. Yeah. You always know because yeah. if it's clear and red, it's wrong. If it's, if <laughs> yeah. it's pastel and, and cloudy, right. then you know you got fresh fish juice in it. Yep. So we, we, we were hit so hard that I started with get shocking i batched we started with <laughs> gallon jugs that were measured out with the ingredients that would never spoil the cointreau the absolute citron and of course cranberry juice is inert you know i think you drink it in 90 years it was totally fine <laughs> and, uh, but uh and then we would add the lime juice at the, at the moment of service and yeah. because we were serving hundreds and hundreds of them a night we had 125 seats in the lounge and 16. now at the bar everything was all in minute we didn't budge right. anything at the bar but back there little tiny service bar oh my god it, yeah we had, we had to, to. Yeah. it was it was an enormous enormous explosion that drink and of course yeah. we i flamed the orange peel and no one else did that oh my gosh and i remember the first time <clears throat> i saw somebody do that i was just like what is this sorcery yeah <laughs> it was so much fun at the rainbow room because we had a darkened lounge you know and you'd serve one and <laughs> yeah. and i remember you know what would you do i hold your hand and i'd, I'd do it really quickly no oh my god 
I want one of those, you know. And yeah. then I'd show people how to do it so they could do it at their cocktail parties at home. You know? Oh. <laughs> Nobody had done anything like that it was before. Little fl- it was this showmanship that I thought was so beautiful. And and I remember thinking, like, I had sort of identified the bars in New York where I could get that. And uh, the first time I we went to Vegas, Dale, you sent me with a list. And you said, go see my, my friend Tony. And yeah. I'm like, okay. And I was super nervous. And I was going with a guy I just started dating, but he was the cocktail guy. <laughs> and you said, go to Bellagio. And go to that bar in the middle of the casino. And I did. And I had uh, their casino cocktail there. And I and, and that was another light uh, for me. And But also the bartenders had that same kind of showmanship kind of thing. And I was like, wait, this isn't just a New York thing. That there are these conversations that are happening. And I started to, as I was traveling around the country, see those places. But it, it's, it felt like, I you know, I was a little snut. I was, you know, in my mid-20s or whatever, and I would think, well, this place doesn't have this, you know, this thing. And I learned pretty quickly, like, okay, this is a very special thing that I should treasure. But I remember bringing a friend uh, to Blackbird and seeing him try to order a blood in sand (laughs) somewhere else (laughs) and uh, being being sorely mistaken. But, um, you know, but it was funny because it felt like they're out of this beautiful wave that you started with these cocktails with this hospitality with this generosity then came this wave of snobbery that came yes. out of it yeah, can we talk that, through the dark was, time it was understandable though yeah. because if you remember when when the uh when galton malo started that thing in paris called nouvelle cuisine oh, you yeah. know and then it, and it was brilliant what they did with those chefs because look at the chefs that were working they were some of the greatest chefs on the face of the earth at the time but then when it crossed the Atlantic, I don't know if you remember what happened to Nouvelle Cuisine. There was a 15-inch plate and a sea scallop in the middle of it, 19-colored <laughs> dots around right. it. Yeah. And that was our idea. Well, you know, and then Chez Panisse and, and, and Alice Waters and Jeremiah Towers really created California Cuisine, their version of Nouvelle, which was brilliant, you know, with big plates and great, great, great portions and lovely. And so that, that awkward beginning, that, that sort of, you know, haughty you know, with these giant plates and no food. Yeah. You know, it's, it's essentially, we have to get a burger after. What happened, you had a bunch of bartenders who, with all this rife with knowledge, you know, yeah. and proud of their tools, and really this profession did not exist, you know, mm-hmm. when I started attending bar. It had stopped existing before Prohibition, you know. So these guys are the first on front line of, you know, they want gin, they want, you know, strong flavored drinks, you know, but only 20% of the audience wants those drinks. Right. The other mm-hmm. 80% wants those juicy drinks, you know. Yeah. And so they stopped doing this and they wouldn't serve that. And oh, uh, I yeah. get it. I get it. But I think when these places started to close or when they started to get a lot of pushback, they realized, nah, this is maybe, maybe we, get, we should go back and look at it. And I think by now, mm-hmm. I, you're not seeing that anymore. Yeah, it's feel like you know? it, it. Well, you said the word that I think is so interesting is profession which, you know, I, I talk a lot with chefs and I've started to talk with more people in beverages and saying this shift away from people getting a job, uh, you know, as a bartender or whatever, because that was the job they could get because they could have wild party lifestyle and, and stuff and, um, and, and not have it be something they had to think about too much. And then there was a, a point at which people realized that this was a profession, that this was a serious vocation. Can you talk about that shift happening, people realizing this isn't just something, a stop on the way to the next thing, oh, my band's playing or whatever, I have to subsidize it kind of thing, and party she lifestyle. Was a pioneer in Yeah, that, in let's that talk moment. about turning it yeah. into a profession. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it's in the early days for me, it was always over the bar was like, okay, well, what do you really want to do? You know, it's never like <laughs> right. being a bartender, what can't, like, this yeah. can't possibly be your yeah. end all, you know? Um, and, and yeah, I mean, for me, it was always the thing that I loved the most and, uh, it was just what's next. I want to bartend and I want to open bars and I want to show people beautiful cocktails and Mm -hmm. why can't this be my profession, you know? Um, and I think, yeah, there was certainly that shift in the, in the nineties into the two thousands where Mm -hmm. These are, you know, people who are like, no, this is what I'm going to be, and and I'm going to be a bartender, and this is a profession, and and tales of the cocktail started, and mm-hmm. you know, and so there were things to support the fact that this isn't just, you know, what you do while you're trying to be an actor, you know. Right. Yeah. Right. You know? I hired 32 bartenders in 1987, and um, actually, like, eight of them were women. Yeah. Joe came to me and he said, I want to see, the, I don't want to see the women behind the front bar. Which really, me. but 
I had no choice. Uh, some of those women went onto the floor because there was more money for them there. Some of them stayed and worked the service bar. But those bartenders didn't leave. And uh, two thirds of those guys are still out there and they're professionals at the highest level. Mm -hmm. And um, because we were so, because Joe was so well known, he was a visionary and because he did what he did, we were high profile, all aspects of Rainbow, from the from Carrie Robbins who designed the, the costumes to, to the dishes with tradition and, and the drinks with tradition. And so <clears throat> I got a lot of publicity. I was on the Today Show and all this, and so all these young guys are seeing this, wow, look at this guy. You know, mm -hmm. and I am convinced that there are parents all over America gunning for this guy, Dale DeGrom, <laughs> who's kid dropped out of med Corruptor. school or dropped, you yeah. know, out of law school or yeah. left his liberal arts college to go become a bartender, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you're right. With the knowledge that they have, they one door opens another, you know, from cocktails we go to spirits, from spirits we go to distilling, now they're made, yeah. and there we go to wine, and you keep going through these doors, and then you are a consummate professional, and you are eligible for those corporate jobs that get mm -hmm. six figures. I mean, this is a, a really, a truly a great profession again. <clears throat> well, let's talk with women about it, too. I want to sort of stay on that thread, because the thing I always appreciated it, at Flatiron and Peggy, it's that I would uh, go there and see women behind the, the bar. Was that uh, was that a deliberate choice? Was that organic? Was that just, well, why not? How did that, that happen? Yeah, well, uh, Flatiron Lounge, you know, the opening team, it was managed by three women, yeah. you know? Uh, and we all were bartenders. So when we opened, mm -hmm. Susan Fedroff and Michelle Connolly and I were all behind the bar. Um, and so, yeah, the, we and, and I had hired other women as well because mm -hmm. I, that was just when I in San Francisco coming up, there were a ton of women behind the bar. When I got to New York, mm -hmm. it wasn't the Not case, in <coughs> and yeah. it wasn't the case. And I would go into you know I was trying to get a job at, at a few different places, and I would walk in and they'd say, oh well do you want to be a cocktail waitress? You know? <laughs> and I would say, no, because I can bartend circles behind these guys, mm -hmm. over around these guys. Put me back there and you'll see, you know, but, but it was, it was a challenge. Um, but yeah, so, uh, you know, I've always enjoyed working with women and I, my partners were women. And so I've always had a very heavy, you know, female staff as, and, and just a balanced staff. Like I don't, mm -hmm. I, when the, there was a shift towards, you know the employees only only men behind the bar you know and there mm -hmm. were other bars who were kind of doing the same thing mm -hmm. even pegu when it opened uh, you know audrey was running it but the opening bar staff there was all men and audrey mm. you know um so you know there was a kind of a, a shift towards towards that mm -hmm. uh but for me i've always had a lot of women behind my bar um, and i've always tried to promote them and um you know, and make different avenues for, for getting yeah. them behind the bar from cocktail server to bartender, whereas a lot of other bars are like, oh, you have to be a barback in order to be a bartender, but they only hire men as bar barbacks. So therefore, well, I mean, <laughs> I mean you know. the great bars in Manhattan now, um, you and Audrey Saunders and Megan, um, was Megan's Megan Dorman, Irving yeah. and her other two yep. bars. These are the best bars, in my opinion, making yeah. the best drinks in the world yeah. now. Yeah. And they're all owned by women. Yeah, and the Clover Club and, oh. and Leanda. Leanda. Um, yeah. We obviously, you know, Ivy Mix, who was, mm. uh, I've mentored for many years. Yeah. Um, we opened open Leanda together, and, you know, we have a huge female staff, always. Yeah, <laughs> and I always appreciated Clover Club because Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah, Because <laughs> exactly. I live in Brooklyn, I don't want to Let's not forget Jillian Voss, who was the head bartender oh, yeah. of oh, Dead yeah. Rabbit. The most popular oh, bar in the world, I just right? yeah. went there for the first time. I'm ashamed that oh, it took yeah. me so long, and I had such a, a splendid and lovely time there. And you know, I it, it's been such a joy to see this evolution. And I can always tell people who you trained, who both of you like. Mm -hmm. I, there is this palpable effect of the people who I can feel it in the service. I can mm -hmm. see it in the drinks. I can see it in the way the menus are written. The people who have have come through uh, working with you. It's you know, it's a really, it's it's a beautiful thing, and I, I, there's just a way I feel sort of like tucked into that space. Like the world disappears outside when that happens, and I, I just, you know, I have such a debt of gratitude towards you, and I think a lot of us do. And I, you know, it, I always want to make sure that the bartenders who are coming up now know who you two are, because it's important, you know. Uh, and the, because the reason that I'm here at Tales is because I talk with people about mental health in the food world and taking care of yourself and stuff. How have you, what have you learned throughout the years of, you know, being behind the bar, working in bars, all that kind of stuff about taking care of your physical and mental well-being? How have you stayed the course with this? 
Um, I'm doing a letter to a young bartender tomorrow uh, at 11.30, so I've been grappling over this issue. Yeah. I'm writing my letter, and, you know, my, my, my focus is, you know, what we're talking about here, about, you know, why you're back here and how this job is so multifaceted. You're doing a bunch of things all at the same time, and it, it, it's a... It's unique in its scope if you do it well, and if you if you uh, really love people, and, and and you can pull it off. It, but at the same time, going into this profession, you have to think of: Do I want to have a family? Am I going to get married? You know, you don't think about those things when you're 22 years old, getting into <laughs> the bar world. You know, because I I was married in the thick of it. You know, working at the Hotel Bel Air in Los Angeles, a fabulous job, and moonlighting at other bars at the same time. And, you know, I had two young sons, and <clears throat> then I come back to New York, and I'm thrown into the Rainbow Room opening and, and Aurora opening and this world, which was like six to seven days a week, kind of an intense, you know, environment. And, <clears throat> and we needed it, you know, because... Yeah. Um, and Jill was left with a, an enormous task, you know, a lot. I don't think I had dinner at home with my family for the whole... 13 years oh that I goodness. worked at the Rainbow Room. Not once did we sit down to yeah. dinner together, you know. And when we had holidays, they came to the Rainbow Room because Joe believed holidays was the time you give back, Christmas, <laughs> New Year's, Thanksgiving. <laughs> so we had our Christmas, day. New Year's, and Thanksgiving <laughs> in the Rainbow Room at a table with the kids, you know. And it, it, you got to think about these things. Can a marriage survive that? You know, you, does your going in, you, you know, you got to talk about this with the person you're going to be with. and. Mm -hmm. And make these kinds of choices, you know. Yeah, and I mean, it, uh, to add to that, you know, it's a it's a fun industry, and yeah. alcohol can be dangerous for some people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I always have, you know, run my places with a absolutely no drinking behind the bar ever because I know that yeah. it's still going to happen. But if they know that my rule is like, don't drink behind the bar it'll cut back on it you know and yeah. i've seen you know so many other bars over the years where they're doing shots at midnight and that just meant that at midnight everybody started drinking who was working there yeah. for the rest of the night you know and i've seen a lot of people who can't handle that and and the downfall of it um thankfully you know i we're at a point now where health and wellness are a big focus mm -hmm. within the bar industry and people are taking care of themselves um you know, and because we've seen some some really horrible—it's been tragic. Yeah, it, things over the over the last you know five ten years. Yeah. Um, you know, me personally, you know, I I I got a Peloton bike for Christmas and I <laughs> love it and I ride that thing every day. You know, oh, that's <laughs> all. Um, but yeah, it's it's really about you. You have to find that balance for yourself. Um, and I had a hard time even when I first opened Flatiron. We didn't serve any food, so I was ordering takeout for dinner every right. night. You know, and I gained. 15, 10, 15 pounds. And I look at these pictures of the early years of Flatiron, I'm like, oh my God. You know, but I was ordering burgers from down the street, <laughs> you know? Right. The, the, the seminar I'm actually doing later uh, today is about how bartenders can get nutrition into their bodies. Yeah, it's a terrible, uh, because you always eat late at night standing up. Yeah. yeah. Or yeah. You know, the worst time you can eat and the worst food. And yeah. you do it standing up. So yeah. it's a Shoving terrible diet. Shoving something in at yeah. the end of the bar because you're so busy that you can't leave the bar. The, yeah. the other thing I wanted to ask you about because I, you know, I, I started out this project Chef with Issues three and a half years ago. It was mostly talking to chefs and now it's broadened to hospitality. Then the difference that I found between chefs and bartenders is bartenders, no matter what mood they're in, they have to be on and smiling and doing mm. all that kind of stuff. And and that takes its whole. Um, Souther Teague wrote, uh, he'd written, he'd started writing it as a Facebook uh, post, and I actually asked him, can I, would you be willing to write more about this, and could I put this on the website for you? And he said yes. He had broken his arm, and so I he couldn't be behind story. the bar. And he talked really openly about how, deal, about working with customers is how he deals with his depression. And minus that, he was spiraling pretty badly. And he came here last year and helped me talk to bartenders. Um, and we, we talked to, I think, like 26 bartenders or something like that in a circle in a closed room about this kind of stuff. Can you talk about managing that when you something horrible is going on in your life, you're in a depressive spiral or whatever, and you have to go and glue a freaking smile on your face? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it, it can be challenging to be on all the time. Um, you know, and I've, I've had bartenders who can't, 
you know, it's like you have to leave your problems and your issues aside the minute you go under the pass, you know, and you're here to make your guests day better, you know, mm-hmm. and they don't want to hear about your right. problems. Um, but yeah, it can be, it, it can be tough to, yeah, to do. I, luckily I had several years of, you know, dramatic training in, in college and then in New York. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I also took dance. I also took voice. So, I mean, I, I, I was behind the bar acting. Yeah. I mean, I, I moved, I tell young bartenders, not, not, don't just take a saucier class and a knife class, take a dance class, learn how to move. You, efficiency of movement behind the bar is critical, you know, and every movement should do a job and, you know, and, and, and you should be graceful. People should see a person back there who's there because, you know, and they're on this side of the bar for a reason. They're not there because they can't do that thing that this guy is doing. <laughs> yeah. It's so gracefully, so quickly, and so, and 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 then the idea, what I what I said a few moments ago, is that this job is uh, doing a whole lot of things all at the same time, and you have to be a lot of things to a lot of different people, which means you need to have a tremendous center so that you can do that kind of play acting and and mm-hmm. and and fulfill the needs and. And even even uh, be observant enough to know what those needs are. You know, is the guy sitting next to the woman chatting her up as she looks away, dis- a little bit distracted and, uh, and maybe a little slightly unhappy? Uh, do you intercede? Yeah. Do you, are you are you gonna are you gonna intercede and then she's gonna be saying, "I got this. Leave me alone." <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, but right. you, this is the game. Leave me alone. A, you know, a psychologist <laughs> to yeah. a lot Absolutely. of people <clears throat> as a bartender, whereas I'm chefs can run around and yell and scream at anybody they want in the kitchen and hide and, and, and hide in the walk-in and, and you know, <laughs> right. Whereas, and they cry no in the place, walk-in a lot too. <laughs> there's no, yeah, there's no place for us to hide. Like there's, you're on. Yeah. You know? And the hardest part is difficult people. I mean, you, Joe, you know, made it very clear to me that my job when I worked for him behind his bars was number one to make friends out of difficult people and number two to tell the oh. stories you know and his stories were great stories so that wasn't hard to do but uh, and of course make good drinks and be friendly but you know those were really important you know and he wasn't crazy about it I mean he would want me to work at these people to try to make friends at the house but there became a certain point and I remember that moment at, at at uh, Aurora, the first time I heard it from him, he came over to me, took me aside, and he said, you know, I might have been wrong about this guy. He, this may not be the right place for him. <gasps> In other words, it's time for him to leave. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And it, you know, yeah. we're not going to make a friend out of this guy. And yeah. That's important. <laughs> I mean, had, we've had a few experiences <clears throat> like that, you know, I mean, in the early days of Flatiron, having you know, some people at the bar, you know. You making, don't want back? Making, com- you know, having crass comments and, and saying homophobic things that, yeah. you know, that I've just been like, hey, this bar is owned by two gay women, so maybe you should find another bar. Another bar <laughs> yeah. to be in. Right. right. Because <laughs> yeah, you're not welcome here anymore. I, I think, and that's an important thing. I remember I have a friend who had a restaurant um, for a little while, and he his thing was he would clear the table and said, do not let the check impede your progress. Ah, that's so good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, and that way they couldn't complain. I spent all this money at this place, and they kicked me out. Like, nope, didn't have to pay, so I can't, I can't go on social and complain. Or, yep. yeah, that yeah. was pretty. Uh, I remember we had Rosemary Clooney uh, twice a year wow. our, on our on our cabaret called Rainbow in the Stars, and this it was actually a, a semi friend. He was a he was the brother of one of my best friends. And I got him a ticket, you know. <laughs> oh, no. And he starts singing along. Oh, God. With the songs. And he's such a big fan, right? So <laughs> we get about three songs in, and Rosie stops in the middle of a song. She says, Bismarck. You know, Bismarck was the mayor of Broadway. He comes over. Uh, this gentleman's check is on me, <clears throat> and he'll be leaving. <gasps> and she stood there and did not do anything until he got up and left. Oh my God! And, uh, and you know, he couldn't wait more than like thirty seconds because everybody in the whole room was like, "Okay, oh my, you God. know, we're here to see a show." So finally, he's like, "Oh my, <laughs> let us all channel some Rosemary Clooney." Like that is amazing. Well, I mean, she was in her the end of her life, and oh. she'd been doing this for decades. Yeah. And she had got it down to an art form how to deal with these kinds of guys. That is or women. Oh my be. God! I, I love that so much. I so we've we've got the we've got the self, we've got the customers. I want to ask you about working with brands too, because I know that that's become more and more a part of uh, of the whole gig. Like everybody's working with brands. I know you're both here with Marie Brizard, and but that's a, that's sort of a new 
bartenders maybe uh, used to be able to more work specifically just behind the bar and stuff, and now it's about all those other hustles too. You get it. You get a gig. Side hustle. Yeah, the side <laughs> hustle, like with a brand, whether it's a liquor, whether it's you know having your own line of of tools, whether it's all these kind of things. Can you talk a little bit about the business of of that? About finding that other thing. I, I, I would say don't go exclusive with a brand because then your career is over as yeah. a, as a, as a spokesperson. Yeah. Because the only reason they're going to take you seriously is because you don't espouse one brand over another. You say, you know, these six gins over here, I really, really love this one over here. Eh, you know, you, you, need, you need to be able to be objective. And if you can't be objective, no one's ever going to hire you. Yeah. So but there, I mean, there yeah. are a lot of bartenders who get to a point in their career, they're like, okay, well, what's next? You know, what do I do now? And there are, are quite a few different directions you can go and working for brands or working for these large, you know, liquor companies um, is, is a, a place that they that they can move to after their totally. career behind the bars is coming to a close. You know, it, it, it is physically exhausting. You can only do it for so long. So there are those things. And, you know, Dale and I both do, you know, we, we're judging the Marie Bazard cocktail competition. Um, and we, we both work judging various competitions, which is kind of newer different companies, thing, yeah. you know. Um, but it's changed, don't you, you agree? And I think Simon Ford was one of the early brand advocates who really moved yep. in this direction was to say, if we want to sell Plymouth Gin, we got to put it up against Beef Eater, Tanqueray, you know, a, a comparable really good gins. And if, the, if, if Plymouth has the, well, Beef Eater's their brand, but if Plymouth has the nerve or is willing to make that step in, instead of saying our brand is the best, but to say our brand is one of a range of really, really premium gins, and this one is really great. In Hendrix is really great over here, and I would use Beef Eater Martini, and, and that way you're raising all. Yeah. Well, yeah. The you're talking about the category, and and you're also appealing to intelligent bartenders because they are intelligent. They really are educated now. Maybe they weren't before, and a lot of times the bartenders are smarter than the distributors. They're trying to sell them stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. And I, I I love it when a distributor walk in and say, you know, this is the Cas pajamas, and I say, oh yeah, well let me pull these three down and put them next to it, <laughs> tasting, and just find out yeah. how good it is, you know. Let's talk about those pajamas. And yeah. by the way, <laughs> by the way, how is it made? And he can't answer that, you know. And I can tell him how it's made, you know. And so there's intelligence out there, and you got to realize that we can't just walk in, give people box seats at Yankee Stadium, and say, okay, this is the only vodka you're going to pour, yeah. and you're well for now on. You know, that doesn't happen, you know, at least not on a certain level. I'm sure it's still happening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is it's also fascinating the evolution of all of this. You know, I this is this is only my second time at Tales and you know, it's been such an interesting thing and to see all the programming that's coming together too that is about actually taking care of the people behind the bar. Like that's making me incredibly happy. What for each of you is the thing that you wish you'd known when you decided to make this your your vocation? More. <laughs> Everything. I mean, I had no sources, you know, no resources. I didn't know where to look. It was, it was, you know, it, it took me Joe Baum, me running into this guy, Joe Baum, who just opened a door for me that I walked through. And from that moment on, you know, my collection of books grew enormously. I didn't even think about buying old books. I didn't know books existed. You know, yeah. I, you know, you're in the bar business. You're not thinking about that stuff. You're, you're young. You're excited you're trying to meet yeah. women or men or whatever and you're just doing you know this job and taste and flavor that wasn't part of the deal <laughs> we never got any f flavor and taste training like the <laughs> wine guys and the culinary guys get behind the bar forget what, what this taste mace i don't you think i got money to pour my stuff away to give you guys a chance to taste this stuff that's money in the bank for me pal you know <laughs> nobody, nobody ever did tastings among bartenders you know this was like hard currency here yeah. <laughs> um i i wish i had i knew more about business yeah you know? um you know i've learned the hard way making mistakes um with partnerships and with financials and with real estate and you know right. in new york city it's a tough thing to na navigate um, and it took me, you know, quite a few years and a few big mistakes to get it right, you know. But and, and now I have an incredible team and partnership um, of people who are all involved in the day to day, every single day, running the bars and making them successful. But you know, there was a lot that I didn't know. Yeah. You know, and and again, yeah, back then there wasn't a, you know bar five day that you could go to or you know my partner Susan is now starting to talk a lot about 
the business side of it. She has a master's in finance. She deals with all of the financial. She's a badass. She's a total badass. She <laughs> and Christine Williams uh, at, at Clover and Landa are they're the ones that that makes make it all go. You know, Ivy and I run around waving and shaking cocktail <laughs> shakers, and, you know, um, and we we do a lot of the um, the fun stuff. But but it's true. Without those people, mm-hmm. you'll fail. You know. So oh, I yeah. w- I would have. I, I, Bartenders don't make the best business people. That's just just the way it is. You know, they're friendly and they're good at what they do, but that ain't part of the deal. I mean, you know, that's 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 numbers and stuff, and that's why we became bartenders. Get away from that. I saw yesterday there was a financial literacy for for bartenders class, and I, uh, you know, I was doing something else at the time. I couldn't go, but I was so grateful. I want to say to you both, like, I owe you such a debt of pleasure because um, what you have done for my my cocktail life, my drinking life, my <laughs> hospitality life. I'm so grateful. And I know that everybody who's part of Tales of the Cocktail, everybody who uh, drinks a good cocktail in America has you to thank for that. So thank you so much for what you have done. If people want to find both of you, where would they have to go? Um, well, I'm, I'm at Clover Club a lot, but you mm-hmm. know, my, I'm at Mixtress NYC on Instagram and social. Yeah. Uh, just uh, kingcocktail.com because I'm, I'm not in a bricks and mortar at all. I'm on the road constantly now. Yeah. Oh, and people will be able to find there where they can find you on the road. <laughs> uh, K- Hong Kong next. I mean, I'm working for the Trade Board of Peru in Hong Kong. I'm working for the Trade Board of Peru this afternoon right here in the tasting room. I'm a big Pisco fan. I work for Holland America Cruise Lines. I go out on those <laughs> cruises. I do work for uh, Paranoid Card. We have oh I have a partnership called Beverage Alcohol Resource. We do a master's class once a year, which is spectacular. And we created Bar Smarts, which has educated thousands and thousands of bartenders online. And I'm very proud of it. We're all very proud of that because uh, it's opened so many doors for these young people. And, and they've really excelled, I think, because of it. There really wasn't anything like that around. So the education part of it is where I put a lot of my eggs in that basket recently. Thank you for that. <laughs> Dale DeGroff, Julie Reiner, thank you so much, and cheers. <laughs> cheers. Thanks for having us, Kat. Cheers. Thank you so much to my guests, Dale DeGroff and Julie Reiner. It's you know, an undeniable fact that the bar industry, let alone the whole world, has, uh, has changed tremendously in the year since we had that conversation, and so many people in hospitality are are suffering. They don't know uh, when or if they'll ever be able to reopen and be able to get back to the jobs that are not just jobs that are they're calling their livelihood, their their community, their their purpose in life. So if you have a local bar or bartender who you really you have relied on for all of these years for so many, many things, maybe check in on them, see how they're doing to see if there is, you know, a, a local effort to help them with, you know, financial struggles right now or to, you know, talk to your local legislators about what's going on. And it's, you know, this is this is an effort that we all have to get behind right now. Um, definitely pick up a copy of the revision of Dale's book because I'm about to dive into it myself, but that original one really formed how I craft cocktails at home uh, for myself and, and for my husband and for our guests. And it was just, I can't overstate how fundamental it was to me and how much both he and Julie Reiner have brought to cocktail culture, not just in New York City, but around the globe. And uh, if you have a chance to sit in on Tales of the Cocktail this year, it is all virtual. Just, uh, you know, we'll include a link to the website for that so you can attend and, and see what's going on in the industry right now, how they're trying to stay afloat. Uh, how they've have they how, what they've been doing to keep on keeping on during this time, and what they think is going to come next. Um, even before this, the industry was in a lot of upheaval about um, in the revelations after Me Too, and especially in the in the past while, where we are all talking a lot more about diversity and inclusion and building a more equitable future for people in hospitality. So definitely tune into Tales of the Cocktail and read those books. I know I've been enjoying a cocktail or two recently. 
so have a lot of us. Um, this is a hard time for everybody right now. So, you know, if you're listening to this, just know you are not alone, whether you're somebody who's in the industry or just somebody who really appreciates everything that bars and restaurants bring to our lives. You're not going through this alone. And I'm right here with you and uh, virtually clinking a glass. Other people I want to clink glass to are to our producer, Amtara Sinha, who is just a rock and a force and all, all of the good, mixing all my metaphors, but she's just fantastic. And figuring this out along with me as we're, we continue to record from home. Thank you so much, Antara. And to all my other colleagues at Food & Wine, especially those who work with me on Food & Wine Pro, I said up top that this is part of Food & Wine Pro, and that is the section of Food & Wine Online and in the magazine and someday again in person where we're really focusing on the issues that matter to the industry and the people in the industry. We are here for you. We want to hear what you are dealing with these days, um, any solutions you've come up with that you want to share, and just really you know, sharing the struggle, that's how we're all going to get through is if we all come together and share innovative, you know, ways that we're, we're thinking about survival, ways we're thinking about what we can leave in the past and how we're all going to move forward together because there there is a future. There absolutely has to be. Restaurants and bars matter so, so much to us as a society and uh, we all want to keep them going. So, Great way to keep track of that is to sign up for the Food & Wine Pro newsletter. You can go to foodandwine.com slash fwpro. There is a newsletter link right there at the top. It is written by our editor-in-chief, Hunter Lewis, with some backup from me and from our associate restaurant editor, Osette Babur, who gets together all of the news of the week, um, along with our a meditation from our test kitchen uh, editor, Kelsey Youngman, who is also a certified meditation instructor, and we share the same mantras that she shares with us at our Monday staff meeting every week. I personally love to just close my eyes, listen to her say them, and, and it really sets a tone for the week, and we are sharing her words um, in the newsletter every week, so please sign up for that. We're trying to make it easy for you, just putting all the news there for you. Um, please uh, you know, sign up for that, and thank you to Sarah Crowder for getting all the images together for both that and the podcast every week. It, I work with geniuses. I am really lucky to work with excellent, good people who have been just super supportive through everything <laughs> recently that we're all going through. And if you like listening to this podcast, I sure hope you do. Um, if somebody forwarded this to you, um, think about subscribing to it. We're, you know, we, we pop up, we try once a week. Sometimes life gets in the way, but we, uh, it's usually once a week. And it really, really helps if you leave comments and stars. It really helps out with that algorithm so more people can find this podcast and listen to it. And uh, we can keep doing these conversations that really mean so much to me and hopefully something to you as well. And if there's somebody you think who we should be talking with, I'm pretty easy to find. I am Kitten with a Whip on Twitter or cat.kinsman at foodandwine.com if you want to drop me a note and say who you think that uh, we should be talking to. And most importantly, as I say every week, take good care of yourself until the next time.